Deloitte Private serves privately held and family-owned companies and advises them on addressing a range of issues, from growth, talent, and succession, to the potential and perils of AI. Connect with us at Deloitte.com slash US slash private. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today's episode is about the energy transition in Africa. And more specifically, we'll get into some case studies on sub-Saharan Africa. When we think about how the energy transition will play out in this region, the question remains whether countries that are still yet to fully build out their energy system will embrace lower carbon emitting technologies or whether they will follow the same path to industrialization as other parts of the world. Each country is at a different place in the process, but the direction of travel is ultimately the same. Each country wants reliable access to electricity at a reasonable cost. We thought this was the right time to dig into research about Africa because COP27 is approaching. The COP meetings are the annual gatherings of the Conference of the Parties of the United Nations. And for the COP meeting that we're referring to today, we're specifically talking about a gathering of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC for short. COP27, which will take place this year between the 6th and 18th of November in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, has a buzz about this year's meetings and wondering whether or not there will be more discussion than in some of the years past about financing decarbonization in developing nations, and that many eyes will be on Africa specifically. Now, to help us consider some of the activity that we're already seeing in the region and things that maybe people will be talking about when we get there to COP27, I speak with Chastity McFadden. She's an energy transitions analyst at BNEF. Now, quickly, a reminder that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we've got a complete disclaimer at the end of the show. And now let's jump into the conversation with Chastity about the energy transition in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa. Chastity, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dana. So we're here to actually focus on a very regionally focused topic. And by regional, I mean, we're talking about an entire continent. So it's going to be hard to narrow it down. I think we will actually narrow it down to specific part of the continent in a moment. But as we get into a discussion around Africa and the energy transition and what it means there, let's start with prefacing that we have this upcoming COP27 that will be in Sharm el-Sheikh. And I've heard a lot of people refer to this upcoming COP as, or conference of the parties, if you will, focus specifically on climate change, because there are more than one of these. I've heard of people refer to it as the Africa COP. And I guess my question for you, as somebody who focuses on researching the energy transition in Africa, is that fair? And do you have any expectations? It can be fair or not, depending on how you look at it. One, I want to sort of preface this with saying there have been several other COPs that have been in Africa. So this isn't the first of its kind by any means. That being said, I think we are at a time when the world is finally ready to talk about the transition in Africa, which is what is making this COP in Sharm el-Sheikh so important. 
So many things could come from it potentially. And why do you think we're ready to talk about it? I think a lot of it comes down to what's happening more on the global scale, such as the war in Ukraine. Everyone is sort of thinking more about the transition. There are more discussions about climate justice and what that looks like as developing nations aren't getting as much funding to sort of prepare themselves for an environmental transition, but they are experiencing most of the environmental backlash, such as with Pakistan and their flooding or monsoon season just being out of control in recent years. So this is a conversation around perhaps just transition and energy access, but also one definitely about emissions and project finance. And I guess we'll come to that. So when we talk today, I think it makes sense for us to focus our conversation on sub-Saharan Africa. And I guess my question for you actually is why has that been in many respects the focus of your research at BNEF? So I chose sub-Saharan Africa because I think it's an amazing region that we don't talk about enough. There's a lot of innovation and changes that are happening on the ground that are otherwise pretty much ignored because there's so much happening in other places in the world at larger scales. But I think that this sort of smaller scale stuff is what has the potential to take these countries that are thinking more about electrification and what it means to build out their power systems and having them implement sort of more green power systems from the get-go. So there's a lot of conversation about leapfrogging over the fossil fuel period, if you want to call it that. And I think Sub-Saharan Africa in particular has the potential to do this, in which makes it a really interesting region to look at for innovation. Well, so then let's dig into one country that is a good specific case study. And, and some of that has to do with the size. So Namibia is about two and a half million people, which to put that into context, I believe, you know, London has over eight million people. So it's roughly the size population wise as the city of Chicago in the United States. But, you know, it definitely has this power system, which has taken advantage of more recently with solar power, has it not? And and how has that taken shape and kind of why do you think it's developed in that direction? Sure. So Namibia has amazing solar resources. So that's a fundamental reason why solar and not maybe wind or biomass. But even more so, the country is very hydro-reliant and with droughts, and the increasing frequency of droughts due to climate change, we're seeing that obviously that is impacting their power system in a deeply negative way. And they're not able to provide for most of their domestic power needs. So they're heavily reliant on power imports from South Africa, which made up about 52% of Namibia's total power in 2021. And Namibia obviously wants to be power independent, and they have a goal to meet 80% of their power demands domestically by 2030. So turning to solar is sort of that first step in developing a more independent green power system for the country. So this is really a story of domestic energy production and wanting to be able to probably have some control over prices. Has that led to, at least historically, buying so much from South Africa? Has it led to power outages or just incredibly high prices at peak use times? 
yes to both. Because the power systems are inherently very reliant on one another, South Africa has its own problems with constant load shedding, blackouts, which are increasing. So increasingly, South Africa can't provide this electricity and power to Namibia, which makes it more difficult for Namibia to get the sources that they need. So then they're just relying on a system that's becoming increasingly unreliant, and therefore their system is becoming unreliant. So they've been historically somewhat a reflection of what was happening there. So as they build out solar, then there is the question of storage. And there has been, I believe, some development on that side. What have they done recently about kind of handling the intermittency issue? So batteries is sort of a new thing in Namibia. They just built, I guess they're working on, and it should be completely commissioned in 2023, but this large first standalone utility scale battery project called the Umburu Energy Storage Project. So this is a 58 megawatt lithium ion battery that's built in conjunction, I guess, right next to one of their largest solar plants. And the goal is to sort of deal with this intermittency problem and make sure that they have that reliability, which is their ultimate goal. And so this Presumably, I mean, and stationary storage batteries are still fairly expensive. So how was this funded? This was actually funded by a German-based development bank, KFW, which is how this battery sort of came to be. So in more developed markets, it's more of a question of how can private investors come in and take advantage of, I guess, selling at peak hours or what sort of methods there are that the government has put in place for private battery investors to make money. And in this case, Namibia doesn't have a system that's ready for that level of complexity. So what they did was the battery is actually owned by the state-owned utility, and it is really strictly there for dealing with intermittency. And because it was funded by the development bank, that issue of high financing costs was sort of dealt with which was and continues to be a large barrier for batteries in sub-Saharan Africa. We do see batteries balancing the grid in a number of different countries. Is this a solution from a technical implementation standpoint that you see in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa, or is Namibia really a pioneer in this space? Namibia is definitely a pioneer in this space, but we're also seeing that there is going to be more uptake. So for example, Senegal is now building a 40 megawatt battery storage plant. There's a little bit of battery storage in South Africa as well. So there's sort of this uptake in it, but Namibia is a pioneer in the way this was financed and sort of the purpose of this to a larger degree. This isn't a battery plus storage project. This is strictly a battery project, which is unique. And then you were talking earlier about South Africa. So Namibia is dependent, at least historically has been dependent upon South Africa's energy system, which is in a bit of strain at the moment. Can you explain kind of what's causing the outages in South Africa and why some people there are referring to, you know, it is an energy crisis completely separate from actually what's happening with Russia and Ukraine independently with, you know, some some crunch on their energy system. South Africa definitely is in a rough place and experiencing 
what many people are referring to as an energy crisis. We're seeing a lot of unplanned outages from usually older plants or explosions at coal plants. ESCOM, the state-owned utility, really doesn't have the resources to do proper maintenance. So what we're seeing is a lot of these plants are kind of falling apart and then they're quickly put back together because this unplanned outage is causing a lot of blackouts and people aren't getting access to power and then they just tend to fall apart again. So we're seeing this a lot among the coal plants in South Africa in particular to the point where unplanned outages increased to 31% in July of 2022, which equates to about 16 gigawatts of the capacity base, which is like highly significant. I think South Africa's grid isn't very large. So that 17 gigawatts causes a lot of issues when it's just pulled offline. I mean, and you reference specifically explosions. I mean, that is pretty big deal for, you know, an energy producing facility, is it not? Yes, absolutely. This is definitely not something that's being taken lightly. It is dangerous and people's lives are at risk as these things are exploding. But I'm constantly getting alerts on my phone about this explosion happened, this many people were harmed. So people are in danger and it is a tragedy, truly. The way that the interconnectors between different countries in sub-Saharan Africa work is possible. And has South Africa been buying energy from other countries, presumably at a higher rate when these sorts of plants come offline? Less so. South Africa really is a energy exporter for the region because it has the largest grid. So many of the surrounding countries aren't producing enough domestically and therefore aren't exporting a lot. There's a little bit of exporting going on from other countries in the South African power pool to South Africa, but it's really not significant enough to make up for what's happening in the country. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Deloitte Private. Private companies seek bold innovation, sector-defining ideas, and clear roadmaps for technology and workforce transformation. Deloitte Private's tailored services and solutions and cutting-edge tools can allow private companies to gain access to industry insights that you can use to identify opportunities and build your future. Connect with us at Deloitte.com slash US slash private. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So in South Africa, instead of leapfrogging, they do have, I mean, you already referenced coal-fired power stations that have been around for a while. They have a lot of legacy generating assets. But there are also things in the pipeline as we look forward. And what are the things in the pipeline? And I guess my question is how many of them are coal or potentially gas, which many do continue to refer to as a bridge fuel, but we can come to where it sits in the energy system given the current elevated prices? Or are they looking at additionally cleaning up their grid and adding more net zero generation? They're definitely looking at 
adding more clean energy solutions to the grid. So in 2021, their power technology of choice was actually solar, which is a change from previous years where it was more fossil fuel energy based. That being said, there is some coal plant in the pipeline, but it's not very much. I think for the entire region, coal plants in the pipeline only amount to 2.2 gigawatts compared to the about 50 gigawatts that are installed. So we see like regionally speaking, coal power is on the decline. And in South Africa, that's true as well. And when they implemented their 2019 integrated resource plan, it definitely has more of a focus on solar and wind capacity being added to the grid to make up for all of the coal they're going to have to decommission. They have decommissioning plans out to 2030 as well. How about natural gas? These prices lately have been putting a pinch, at least definitely here in Europe and in Western Europe. What has it meant for Africa? So it's a bit complicated in Africa because we're seeing that there are a lot of discoveries of gas reserves. So there's a lot of talk about exporting gas to Europe and there's even potential plans. They're not super official yet, but they're working on it to build a gas pipeline from Nigeria to Morocco with the hopes of exporting that to Europe to make up for the energy crisis that Europe is experiencing due to the Russia-Ukraine war. But like domestically speaking, most African countries are really installing more solar. There still is quite a bit of natural gas and it makes up a huge portion of total capacity. It's at about 41% of total capacity is natural gas in Africa for 2021. And this number increased from about 30% in 2012. So we're seeing that this is growing, but it's not growing at such a high rate like solar is. Like solar grew about 5% across the continent in 2021. And we're kind of predicting that that will continue to grow as more countries like Ghana, Rwanda, South Africa, Tunisia, and others are choosing solar to be their primary installed technology each year. Each country has a very different makeup of the investment profile and the levelized cost of electricity for different technologies may differ from place to place. You know, is solar the cheapest solution in some countries? And let's say, you know, we've been talking thus far about Namibia, South Africa, and then maybe let's add one of the other reasonably developed energy systems, Nigeria, to the mix. Are you seeing the LCOE in a lot of these countries? Is it competing? And where do gas and coal fall on this? I've been surprised sometimes when looking at some countries outside of Europe and outside of North America that the cost for coal, for example, is much cheaper than, you know, I initially assumed. Yeah, absolutely. So it really depends on the country, as you were saying. But there definitely are countries where solar is the cheapest. And we kind of understand that solar prices for this region are going to continue to fall. So right now, based on our calculations, solar and coal are about equal if we're looking at countries across the region. The issue with solar is that the LCOE is such a wide range 
Like it can be from $58 a megawatt hour to $215 a megawatt hour. So it really, really depends on where you are, the resources that you have, which impacts how it's going to compare to fossil fuels, of course. And those prices for fossil fuels per megawatt hour are a little more stable. So coal is about at 138 a megawatt hour and natural gas for combined cycle gas turbines is 74 to 150 per megawatt hour. So there's definitely a range. It depends on where you are. That being said, our calculations show that coal and solar are about at the same level right now, and we expect solar to continually dip until it falls even below natural gas. We kind of expect that solar will be the cheapest new installed technology by 2025 across the region. And these are largely new projects. So that then brings me to who are funding these projects and you know who's investing in you know, South Africa's grid, for example. We're seeing investment come from quite a few places. We have investors in APAC in Europe. Of course, primarily development banks are most interested in investing in these projects. There's some funding coming from Middle East, North Africa, as well as the Americas. But we also see that there's like a lot of domestically based funding for many projects, especially for gas-fired power plants. And do you think that that will be ultimately the funding of these projects will be the thing discussed the most at the upcoming COP? Absolutely. Most of the talk by countries in Africa when talking about COP this year is really about the investment gap. So developed nations were supposed to hit an investment of $100 billion by 2020, and they just didn't make it. And BNF sort of predicts that there's only a 4 in 10 chance that the $100 billion target will be met by the end of 2022. So that's only a 40% chance. And developing countries are not happy about this, obviously, as we talked about before, about justice and what that's looking like as many of these countries are dealing with a lot of the consequences of climate change because they don't have the resources to mitigate those problems. Because of that, they're really demanding that the money be sent to these developing countries to help build them up and create these green economies and green markets. Which country in sub-Saharan Africa have you seen the most external financing go into? So our biggest markets are South Africa, Morocco, Kenya, and Egypt, and they definitely attract the bulk of investment. So for foreign direct investment, they made up about roughly half of total investment from 2010 to 2021. So those are sort of our hot markets that are constantly pulling in more investment. But interestingly, in 2020, we're actually seeing that a pretty large percentage are from smaller countries outside of those big four. So thinking more of the large biomass project in Cote d'Ivoire, that was a really large project in 2020 that really pushed investment in that region. And we're sort of seeing, again, that these smaller countries are making up the bulk of investment in 2021. So there's potential that there's sort of going to be a shift here. But historically speaking, definitely those four markets have made up the large majority of foreign direct investment. 
And what is the policy environment like in some of these countries? So, I mean, you referenced earlier that Namibia, it's a state-owned utility. So I could see that from an external investor standpoint, that may not be as favorable when compared to, you know, a liberalized market. What do you see and what sort of trends do you see in some of the countries around policy? We're seeing, interestingly, a lot of our big policy frameworks such as auctions, renewable energy targets, import tax reductions, things like that. Africa as a continent is performing at a really high percentage. The majority of countries have these policies in place. Where we're seeing the gap is sort of implementation of these policies. So while they're in place, maybe they're not so consistent, like auctions don't happen on an annual basis, or there's like a big one, and then there's a huge gap of time, and then another big one comes up. So that's happening a lot and causing a lot of investor concern around getting into these markets. More advanced power systems have... Things like a wholesale market, for example, and we're seeing that zero countries across Africa have implemented a wholesale market. And that's a really reliable way for investors to get involved in the market. So there definitely is a policy gap, but I would say the majority of the policy gap is really about consistency of the policies that are in place, which needs to be addressed before adding additional policies. And how are auctions working? I mean, again, I keep coming back to the fact that we've got to pick a couple of countries to highlight. And I think the main thing about researching this space is, you know, there's this ability to essentially highlight case studies and then to use these case studies as a way to say, you know, this may be a potentially parallel market and a way to look at how to design an energy system and, you know, take bits and pieces from your neighbors, or maybe don't, and develop it as you go. But where are you seeing kind of auction markets functioning really well and driving the desired outcome in terms of, you know, cleaner capacity being developed? I think South Africa usually plays a very big role in sort of determining auctions just because they implemented the 2019 Integrated Resource Plan. It sort of outlined exactly what their auctions were going to look like out to 2030. So that was a really, really significant piece of policy for the region and sort of something that's being looked at and implemented in other places as well. So we definitely look to South Africa as a case study for auctions. That being said, like I mentioned, inconsistency in auctions is a big problem and South Africa is not immune to this issue. But definitely one place that it has worked out, Kenya is another country that has seen quite a bit of capacity, I guess, clean energy capacity installed due to auctions. They auctioned off a huge wind plant a few years ago that has provided a lot of power to the grid. They also have geothermal and solar, a lot of different technologies to sort of diversify the grid. Namibia is also an example of auctions being implemented, but they sort of have struggled with consistency of application, although we're seeing that a lot of the issues are being addressed. So they're increasing renewable energy capacity, especially solar. And as we talked about before, the batteries to increase that capacity on the grid. Thinking about, I guess, mechanisms that have worked to drive emissions down in certain parts of the world, 
in other parts of the world, and I'm thinking specifically now from where I'm seated in Europe with the EU ETS, is there a discussion around carbon markets? And is that starting to surface in many parts of Africa at the moment? There are discussions happening. Namibia is another great example of this. They're talking more about carbon offsets and have been working with Japan to sort of figure out how to offer carbon markets. And a lot of this comes from their new nationally determined contribution, their NDC, where they're aiming for a 91% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 compared to 2015 levels. So this is a significant reduction. And part of how they're hoping to achieve that is through carbon offsets. And then as we head into COP, so it's just, I mean, just around the corner in November, what is it that you're watching? You'd reference these percentage chances of certain things happening. You know, we do take a, a forward looking on our policy focused analysts. They do try and say, okay, what are the chances that we have an outcome in these kind of 10 areas? What are the sorts of things that you're keeping the closest eye on if this is one of many Africa cops? I think I am also pretty closely looking at this investment piece and thinking about where this investment's going to come from because it's not super clear yet exactly who is going to fund this transition in Africa and how we're going to have a just transition across the world. We don't really know. There are lots of people. The word just transition and even some countries in Africa have policies around just transition, but how that actually plays out and who is funding this are the big questions that I'm thinking about and looking at going into COP this year. So not just the commitments of the money that's already been you know, put against in theory, in the air, in committed to, but actually seeing that financing, the development financing actually come to pass and what may happen I guess, on the back of meetings taking place this November. Exactly. Well, Chastity, thank you for sharing with us what you will be watching as we look ahead to COP and also as we just think about what is going to happen in a growing part of the world from a population and energy demand standpoint. I'm sure that you were saying this is a, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular was one of the spaces that we weren't covering in super robust detail several years back. But I do anticipate that we will only see more research focused on this part of the world going forward. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Dana. This was a lovely conversation. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like 
everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.